Good morning. Will you guys turn in your Bibles to Hebrews uh, chapter 11? We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 today. I'm going to read those, and then I will uh, pray for us, and we'll get started. This is God's Word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For it, for by it, the people of old received, received their commendation. By faith, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And as David prayed, we'll pray this again, and we'll pray this until we die. Will you continue to birth in our hearts faith? We know that what we mainly feel is unbelief, but we don't want that to be the case. We want faith to be something that springs up and that motivates every one of our actions so that our lives look more and more and more like your son. For that to happen, we need your spirit to come. And so we ask that you would send him, that he would be present here, and that he would illuminate each of our minds to your word and that our hearts would follow in your name. Amen. Well, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been five weeks since we've been in the book of Hebrews, right? We haven't talked about Hebrews for five weeks, and so I thought uh, maybe it would serve us well to just kind of revisit where we've been, where we've come from, um, so we know where we're going this morning by the time we get, to around, we get around to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, we've said this a number of different times, and it's like this Christian academic cliche to remind you that we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, right? And that doesn't even really matter that we don't know who wrote it, because here it is in the canon. But one of the things that does matter that you know very quickly is that the person that you're reading that's writing this letter, like the letter to the Hebrews, he doesn't write like other people. He doesn't write like Paul, really. He doesn't really write like John. He writes like somebody totally different. Paul, when he writes a letter, he's got a conflict in his mind, right? He's got some kind of controversy that he's smelling all over the breath of the church that he's writing to. And he's going to come out with it. It's going to happen chapter 1 or chapter 3 or something like that. But it's going to come quickly because that's what he's writing about. He's a just direct and to the point man. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't really do that. It takes kind of a long time to get around to the controversy or to the thing that he sees in the church that's frustrating him. He's got to go through a lot of material before he gets to this moment of conflict. He's going to go through a lot of different things. So in chapter 1, what do you see? You begin Hebrews with this awe-inspiring and massive picture of Jesus as majestic and supreme, not a mere man that just wandered around Palestine preaching obscure Jewish doctrines and fables. No, he is a man who's been appointed the heir of all things and through whom the world was created. Now, because of the supremacy of God's Son, we learn that it's Jesus who properly saves us. Moses was who Moses was, and as such, is worthy of a whole lot of honor, but Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Even more, Jesus is our great high priest, the one who stands in the gap 
between us and God and who intercedes on our behalf. God's purposes, they, including his purpose to establish Jesus as our great high priest, those, those are unchangeable. And therefore, we can have great encouragement. We can have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, Jesus. But five weeks ago, we get to chapter 10, and we learn that not all who are getting this letter are finding the encouragement that they need to persevere in faith. In fact, some are drifting, and they are drifting to a degree that hope for them has dwindled and has very likely evaporated. But there's a remnant. There are a few who have persevered even to the degree of being publicly reproached, afflicted, and imprisoned for their allegiance to Jesus. And so verse 36, one of the very last things that we hear of chapter 10, before we read this part about faith and hope in Hebrews chapter 11, is this. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the writer has to turn to faith now, and he's got to turn to faith by telling us what faith is, and he's going to turn to faith by exhibiting for us what faith is, by showing us its example in a bunch of different people in chapter 11, which is what we're about to come to. Now, I have a friend, and he's like, uh, I guess he's like my oldest friend, you know, he's like, we knew we were friends before we were even aware that each other were alive or whatever, you know, we've known each other Forever, it feels like. And he actually happens to be um, a minister as well. And so he was, we were talking on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and he said, what are, you, uh, what are you guys preaching on? And so I said, well, we're in, we're in this vision series that David is doing, but we had been in Hebrews, and, and we'll go back to Hebrews after that. And he said, you know, I, the thing when I think about the book of Hebrews is, he was like, I'll, he said, I always think that the book of Hebrews is the perfect book for like a great, cheesy uh, football illustration about a half-time coach uh, what do you, speech. He's like, Hebrews is perfect for that because it actually fits into that model almost exactly. What do you have here? Well, you've got a team that at halftime is getting, according to him, beaten very, very badly. But the coach doesn't want them to quit because the coach can see something that the players can't see. That is, they actually have the resources to win the game. Now, the coach has this problem, and it's a problem with repeating himself. And so he's saying the same thing over and over again, repeating himself and what do some of the players start to do? They start to kind of roll their eyes. And their cynicism is starting to rise a little bit. Now, rolling your eyes, that's not going to get you kicked off the team. But it does dishonor the coach. And if you roll your eyes long enough, you actually prove yourself to be what maybe you were all along. And that's a quitter. And nobody likes a quitter. And that's a Basic, he's basically exactly right. That is the book of Hebrews, in a nutshell. The writer needs the hope that these people have to leap the gap and actually become faith. Hope 
in this writer's mind and faith are not exactly the same thing. They can be related, like very closely related, kissing cousins, identical twins, whatever. But they're not always the same thing. So what this writer needs is for the hope that exists in these people, the hope of God's goodness, the hope that Jesus is going to someday finally deliver them from the persecution that they're feeling, the hope of all that kind of stuff to leap the gap of doubt and become the assurance that is faith. Here's what I want to do to try to kind of talk about just these three verses and talk about it from that angle. If we can please work backwards this morning, we'll start with verse 3, talk about that first. I'm not going to say anything about verse 2, because verse 2 says that by faith the ancients were given what they were promised, and the entirety of chapter 11 talks about that and bears that out, so we won't talk about that. And then we'll end with the distance between faith and hope, the distance that can exist between faith and hope. But let's start with verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, the writer to the Hebrews leaves no stone unturned. That's obvious by now. Anybody that talks about Melchizedek, like halfway through their letter, somebody that barely shows up in the Bible at all, that's a guy that leaves absolutely no stone unturned. But what you learn about the writer to the Hebrews really quickly is he's not trying to look smart for y'all. He's not trying to impress you that he knows obscure figures from the middle of the book of Genesis because he's not going to leave the simplest stone unturned either. And that's what we have at the beginning of this, at the beginning of this, or in verse three here. The writer to the Hebrews is obsessed with first principles and he's obsessed with demonstrating that faith is present even in things that might initially be assumed. Now, here's what I mean by that. And here's why this is important. There is absolutely zero Jews. There is not a single Jew in the first century in this area that would have doubted that God created the world. Christian or not. There's nobody out there that would have doubted that. That is not an issue. That's not something up for debate. The very first words of the Bible are, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Every single Jewish boy and Jewish girl would have been taught those words at the very beginning of their life. That is just simply not up for debate. That's not where doubt lies for these Christians in this church. What is up for debate and what is questioning, what is questionable is their present suffering. That is, what they are wondering is not, did, did God create the world, but will Jesus be faithful to me? Will he finally rescue me if all I can see right now is pain and hardship? Those are two very different questions, right? One's like a first principle, doctrinal, theological question. The other one's like experiential and existential and it's full of pain and it's hard to ask and you don't even want to hear the answer to it. And you can see if you're asking the second question, the question about suffering and the coach is in the halftime speech, back to that, if he's telling you nothing about God except for about God creating the world, you'd be rolling your eyes. 
But this writer knows precisely what he's doing. If we're going to move from hope to faith, we have to prove that faith already exists, that it is not an impossibility. And if we can prove that through reminding the audience that it takes faith to believe that the things that we see comes from things that we don't see, we're off to a good start. Seen things come from unseen things, and that's what the writer is after. Their deliverance from sin that they struggle with now, their deliverance from the ridicule of the people that are around them, their ability to have their weary head uplifted and move forward is possible because seen things come from unseen things. You have to live by faith and not by sight. When I was thinking about this, just a simple illustration, I was in high school, uh, or excuse me, when I was in undergrad in college, I had friends all around me. I went to actually like a Bible college, and I had friends all around me that were walking away and leaving the faith left and right. And I had one professor, he would, he would want to get together with him, and he'd say, why is it that you're walking away from Jesus? Why are you forsaking the church? Why are you this? And they would have a myriad of different answers. Oftentimes, they had to do with some kind of simple theological tangent that they had gotten on, and they, they were walking away. And he all the time would say, well, let's, could we just have a conversation about what you still love about Jesus? What's still attractive to you about the Bible? I understand this thing over here that's making you want to leave. Is it like maybe the Sermon on the Mount, the fact that Jesus taught you to love your enemies? Do you still appreciate that? And I saw person after person after person saying, I'm willing to start there. Okay, okay. I'm willing to begin and believe that there's still a seed of faith in my heart and start there. And so the writer here begins with the first chapter of Genesis. Before you get to Abel or Noah, before he's going to show you about faith in anybody else, he's got to start at the very beginning in the first chapter of Genesis. And he does that because it's, of course, it's of first importance that God created the world but it's also of first importance because it's one of the most comforting passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. I've shared this little illustration before, but I'm going to try to tweak it so that uh, if you've heard it, it's not stale. Maybe it'll still be novel and grip you in the way that it ought to. But when I was... um, One of the great privileges, you guys all know this, right? One of the great privileges of having young children around whether you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle or just a nursery worker, one of the great privileges of having little children around is just simply the privilege of being able to read to them, right? And there are good children's books out there, and there are sort of bad children's books out there, but there's only one children's book that's timeless, right? There's one that in the history of the world has sold more copies than any other. There's one that's in everyone's house. Even if you don't have kids, it's probably somewhere because at some point some kid's coming over. This thing is timeless. And you guys all, of course, know what it is. It's Goodnight Moon. And I would venture to guess that everyone in this room has either read Goodnight Moon or had Goodnight Moon read to them at some point in their life. And long before I ever was a parent, I actually was a nanny. In my early 20s, I was a nanny and I installed carpet part-time for a living, which is how I have that 
peculiar mix of brawn and deep tenderness that you so rarely see in men. Just kidding. That was roughly uh, 10 years ago. I really was a nanny. Um, 10 years ago, I uh, was this nanny, and it was for a three-year-old girl and an infant, or kind of like a toddler boy. He was probably nine months to a year, and it lasts a while, so they grew. But around that time, uh, HBO ran a special on Goodnight Moon. And the way they did this special, the directors uh, got a bunch of children between the ages of three and ten and just kind of asked them to talk about Goodnight Moon. Just ask very simple questions about Goodnight Moon. And so they describe the story and they analyze it and so forth. And it's hysterical. And the girl that I lo- that I nannied loved it. And so we watched it five times a day for I don't know how long. So I saw it a million times. And the special has this Pixar effect, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, where like the adult appreciates the movie and the kid appreciates the movie. And the way that HBO achieved that with this special on Goodnight Moon is by understanding that the kids are going to be hysterical to the adults. What they say about Goodnight Moon is going to be funny to adults. And then in the background, you're going to have this soothing voice reading Goodnight Moon, and that's going to be good for the children. And so you create this wonderful environment where you're not fighting over the TV with the child that you nanny. So the, the, thing that you, the second thing that you realize very quickly, and this is where I'm going with this, is that the HBO directors knew something critical about Goodnight Moon, and this is why they knew it was going to be funny for kids to talk about it. And that's this. Goodnight Moon makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense. There's not a plot. There's not a main character. There's no conflict in the story. There is nothing in Goodnight Moon that makes it worthy of being timeless children's literature. Nothing. But it sells more. It makes millions every single year. Charlotte's Web is hanging out there, and it has plot, characters, conflicts in spades, and Goodnight Moon will outsell it. E.B. White was a genius. Margaret Wise Brown, we don't know what she was, a bohemian. I don't know what she did. But the point is, is that there's something special about Goodnight Moon. And so I began a 10-year quest, a 10-year quest to determine what it is that is profound about Goodnight Moon. And I've read a million different answers. People have different answers. But I did read one guy that, and this is, I'm going to tell you the position that I hold here on Goodnight Moon. I got it from this guy. And that is there's one thing that makes it special. There's one thing, and it's rhythm. It's rhythm and rhythm's utterly stunning daughter predictability. You just simply walk through this boy's room, acknowledge an item here, acknowledge an item there, and bid it good night, and generation after generation, after generation of children have laid their heads on their caretaker's shoulders and fallen asleep to the rhythm and predictability of that book. Genesis 1 works exactly the same way. 
No matter how wildly diverse the day's creative activities are, the day will end with God declaring it good. And in the end, the whole of it will be very good. But here's the thing. As soothing as that is, you only know it by faith. You can read Genesis 1, but you can't really see it. And so the faith has to be born in your heart And God's strategy for conceiving that faith is predictability and rhythm. No matter how many things he creates, no matter how surprising and unpredictable what he creates is, you know one thing, it's good. That's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews knows has to happen to the people that he's writing to for them to have faith that's going to stand. But where does that leave us with hope? Hope, you know, of course, isn't a bad thing, right? It helps form Paul's famous triangle of Christian living. You remember Paul says, these three abide, faith, hope, and love. Uh, But here, the writer understands that hope may not always issue in faith. The recipients of this letter very well may hope that Jesus will be the anchor of their soul, But with all of this persecution happening, are they assured of it and does it become faith? Here's what I want to do to try to to try to explain that there's a gap between hope and faith. I want to give you a list of things that I hope for personally. And these are actually serious things. They aren't maybe even some of them border on sentimental They aren't about me hoping to get a parking spot or anything like that. These are actual things that I hope for that I can promise you that I hope for, but that I actually can't promise you that I always have the full assurance of faith about. So if you'll listen to them. I hope that my marriage to Anna lasts in the way that our vows said it would. That is, until death would do us part. I hope that my sons and the sons of CPC... And the sons of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church grow up to be lion-hearted, valiant, and humble soldiers for the mission of the gospel and for the truth of the coming of the kingdom of God. I hope that my daughter and the daughters of CPC and the daughters of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church grow up to love mercy, desire deep intimacy with their heavenly Father, and and grow up to be strong and tireless workers for love and good deeds in a world that's shattered by pain and evil. I hope that CPC makes disciples that makes disciples and becomes a church that plants churches. I hope that God will forgive um, my sins. I hope that one day Rachel will no longer be weeping for her children, but will see a diverse, multi-ethnic, redeemed, innumerable crowd of the elect worshiping before the throne of Jesus. I hope that one day I see Leah, ugly no longer, but with the beauty that outshines Helen of Troy because the bright light of the Lamb of God shines upon her. I hope that one day I get to meet John the Baptist, whose severed head struck terror from a dish with a new body, glorified and head attached. And I hope to see him never have to fast again, but staggering with joy, drunk off the blood and gluttonously full off the body of his cousin. And finally, I hope that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I hope that on that moment, when that happens, when we all kneel and do that, I get to kneel next to you. I get the privilege of kneeling next to you, and we can look at each other, and we can say, that was worth it. But, again, those are just hopes. And the deepest sin in my life, and I suspect that the deepest sin in your life, is that those kind of hopes don't always issue in faith. But this is precisely where the writer to the Hebrews is leading us. He's going to lead us to the same kind of rhythm that we get in Genesis 1. By, what you're going to hear for the next few Sundays is that by faith, this great cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by actually achieved what God called them to achieve. And so faith comes from the rhythm of God's great predictability. Never leaving us or forsaking us, never failing to forgive our sins, never stopping the activity of His Spirit to motivate us to shake off the sin that entangles and to grow in love and good deeds. Maybe the last thing that I'll say, and if you'll allow me to use the word intertextuality and then to do some intertextuality, I have one more thing to say. You remember intertextually from a different writer that we said that Paul's famous triangle of Christian living is faith and hope and love, right? That happens in 1 Corinthians 13. But then Paul commas and says something after that. He says, but the greatest of these is love. Well, why? Maybe because hope and faith, they need to be there in your heart, but they ebb and flow. What's everlasting is the Father's love for you. And what you always have the potential for is deep Christ-like love laying down your lives for one another because His Spirit has been shed abroad in your heart. So let's close with the words of Christ that you find just a chapter later in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joy, joint, but rather healed. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we know that um, there's lots of things that we hope for. We know that's not the same thing as just wishing for something. We know it's a stronger reality than that. It's something that's deeply theological. But we want that to be- become faith. We want that to be assurance. And most of all, we want to be assured that you're going to keep us in faith. And so by your Spirit, we ask that you would do that this morning, Lord. Would you make the rest of this, this day, including our time at the table, a time of deep strengthening of our faith. In your name we pray. Amen.